You're listening to the Business and Barbecue Podcast, hosted by Tim Harridge. Tim Harridge is an active entrepreneur who built and sold six companies by the age of 40 and enjoys sharing the ups and downs of business and entrepreneur life. As for the barbecue, that's just something he has a passion for and likes to share as well. Here's your host, Tim Harridge. All right, all right. What's cooking, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Business and Barbecue Podcast. I am your host, Tim Harridge, and today I am being joined by one of the most all-around good guys you will ever meet. Jeff Tennyson is a CPA, MBA, CEO, CFO, COO. The man has earned and used about every three-letter designator you can find. Today, we're talking about being an entrepreneur, running large businesses, running small businesses, leading from a position of intention, avoiding some of the traps along the way, work-life balance, and deciding which is better, Carolina barbecue, Texas barbecue, or maybe even Memphis. Stick around. We'll be right back. I can't wait to introduce you to my good friend. Jeff Tennyson. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com slash TH and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs. Download a free title and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audibletrial.com slash TH to get started today. Today, I have my good friend, Jeff Tennyson, with me on the line. Jeff, say hello. Hello, Tim. Thanks for having me on your show. Man, it's good to have you here. And so Jeff is someone that I first met in my days with the Blackstone Company B2R Finance. He was uh, someone that was larger than life in both the culture and in leadership and in mentorship for me personally. And he really kind of taught me how to and not to be a corporate employee, something I had no experience in and no longer have an interest in. I thought, who better to have on to talk about being an entrepreneur and being an intrapreneur? And Jeff, I know you've led companies that that you had no ownership in and you've led companies that you had ownership in and you've led companies that you ended up earning ownership in. So I just thought it would be great to spend a little bit of time talking about theory and culture and staying grounded. And why don't you just take a couple minutes to introduce yourself and tell people about you? Sure. Thanks. I have scanned the whole gamut of companies and sizes and uh, different stages of companies' life. I've started up businesses and failed miserably. I have run multi-billion dollar public companies and seeing the, the pros and cons of the large companies and then things in between. What I have found, though, consistently is I really thrive as a leader when I'm in a healthy culture. And I've learned over the years that culture trumps strategy every single time. And you can't have a good enough strategy if your culture sucks. And I found that to be so true in the various companies at whatever stage of life they are in to be a, a very true story or a very true concept. So even a small company has a bad culture. It's And we've seen some of that together. But bad culture is so toxic to people and everybody begins to go at each other and not really pushing towards a real company goal. And it doesn't matter the size of the company. It doesn't matter the stage of the life cycle that it's in. So I've really tried to champion organizations and companies that have a healthy, good culture. And how we define that or how I've been able to define that is it's all about the respect for all employees. Everybody is an important, valuable part of the team or quite frankly, Tim, they shouldn't be 
here. We should deal with the employment side of someone who shouldn't be here. And so culture has been a big part of that. And it's been a fun part of growing and building as a leader. And that's been an important part of my success and sometimes failure. Give some examples of just some companies you've been a part of and how you exited, whether it was successful or not, right? Because I like to really highlight that even brilliant, successful people make mistakes and I think growing out of those mistakes can sometimes be the most valuable thing in our lives and our careers. So talk a little bit about some of the companies you've been a part of and why you exited or how you exited and kind of where you're focused at now. So I started out as an accountant. I was an accountant of academic training, went to work as an accounting staff person for Arthur Anderson in Tulsa, Oklahoma. That was just right out of school. You're doing whatever you need to do to make a living and build a family and all that kind of stuff. Out of that, I really got introduced. They got asked to go join a public manufacturing company. It was the third largest U.S. manufacturer of glass containers in Tampa, Florida. And I did that because I had two mentors of mine, the CEO and the CFO, who were really personal business mentors of mine. And they convinced me to come work for them at the time because they needed my skill set. I was interested in doing that because I just really liked the individual. And so from that, it was really my first exposure to a health culture and an environment where you really could focus on profit, growth, and fun as a big part of the company and how you operate. And that company, interestingly, ended up having to go through bankruptcy and we had to get it sold. And there were some really challenging pieces to that company from an operational perspective. But at the end of the day, the culture and the environment and the ways that we operated really had a real impact on me as far as if I can focus on culture and build a healthy culture, the good and bad times of business management operations can come through. I left there and went to start a mortgage company. And at the time, it was a 40-person residential mortgage company in Charlotte, North Carolina from a, a undergraduate college friend of mine had started the company, wanted me to help him build it out because he was the only guy I knew that, that he knew that had run a big company. And so we started with 40 people and he had a real focus on caring for employees, creating a great environment for people, a great place to work. That helped me learn and respect the concept of culture and how we do it. We grew that company from 40 employees and went through a couple of different owners of that. But at the peak, it had 1,400 employees. Uh, we were doing $2 billion a month in mortgage originations. And we're really able to keep a healthy, fun, appreciated, respected culture, even to this day. Now, ultimately, the outcome of that, it was a subprime originator. And so in 2007, 2008, it was owned by Barclays, a large UK bank. And they just decided they were going to totally exit anything operational, particularly toxic <laughs> subprime loans. And so I had to stand up in front of 800 people and explain to them that, that all of us were losing our jobs that day. It was horrific to stand in front of those people, many of those you hired, all of those you led, many of those you made promises and expectations to, and tell them everybody was going to lose your job that day. However, it really focused me on the fact that culture really does matter. Right. And the reality is you need culture the most when things are hard and times are tough. When things are good, everybody's typically making money. They're typically doing things that they all like to do. They're getting promoted quickly. All the different things that maybe culture doesn't impact as much. But as soon as you have a downturn, as soon as you have an environment where you have to tell people they no longer have a job, then you really get your culture tested. And you know, to this day in Charlotte, North Carolina, I mean, you and I worked together there. A lot of the people that we would hire came from that company and all of them wanted to come back and work for me and the culture 
I think that's it's a powerful thing that many, I mean, more than half of our first employees there had worked for you at another company. Most likely they were probably in the room with the 800 people that were told, hey, you don't have a job anymore. But they thought enough of you and respected you enough that when you came to them with a new idea that wasn't even proven out yet, you know, because what we did at B2R was just, it was cowboy world, right? I mean, nobody had ever done anything we were doing, but they trusted you and they jumped full-fledged in. I'll never forget when you decided to leave the company, we had to have a company-wide conference call basically to talk people off the ledge. I was unfortunate enough to have to like get in one of your shoes. I wouldn't say fill your shoes, but I had to stand in one of them and take over all these salespeople that had known you for two decades almost. And they were livid. It was all I could do to beg them to stay. Not only is it a testament to you as a a person, but I think it's that philosophy of always treating people right, always being honest with them up front. Frankly, it's probably one of the reasons I had so much trouble running 2020 REI because I didn't want to be there. I wanted to be at my son's school. I wanted to be at my ranch. I wanted to be somewhere else. And I think that that real lack of interest, I was quote unquote, just doing it for the money, doing what it is we always do and growing for the sake of growing. I'm pretty sure that's the reason that I ended up winding that down is because I didn't enjoy it. And by extension, no one there enjoyed it either. I mean, uh, I think I think there's a couple of words that I always think of when I think of real leadership. And one of them is intentional. In leadership, it's so easy to be in your ivory tower office and let everything come to you. And it's so easy to be the top guy in the company and just let every, you're the one that gets to make the decisions and everything you say gets responded to. And people jump when you say, I need this. And I'm always amused that things that I say end up getting implemented and I really didn't mean for them to get implemented. So one, you got to be intentional with what you do. But secondly, you've got to really care and you've got to care for everyone in your organization in a way that if you're equally as offended, if the person in charge of, of the mailroom is not respected in the appropriate way is your top salesperson. And that caring and that intentionality makes a big difference. You know, I talked to our guys, we do a monthly leadership lab here at Lima One. Well, before we get into that, let's transition into left the big mortgage originator. You did some things on some boards of some banks. And then I know you were on a couple other leadership positions and you settled at, I'm going to skip all the way to Lima One for time's yeah. sake. And so now you're at Lima One. Tell people a little bit about Lima One, what you do, and then get into that leadership uh, lab. Perfect. You and I were together at B2R. I left there to go help run a company called Clayton Holdings, which is a large mortgage due diligence public company and finished things there and was in Florida thinking I'd just stay on the beach for a while. And our chairman and founder, John Warren, who is a former Marine like you and, and built this company, will get to kind of one of the reasons I got here, one was the culture they had here. And that was built on his company in the Marine Corps was the Lima company. And uh, he was, the, and the Lima one comes exactly from his and our COO, John Thompson, platoon in Marine when they did four tours of duty in Ramani, Afghanistan. So uh, I'm very appreciative of your service and appreciative of their service. And it, it really filters into what Lima one. So when John Warren called me, he wanted to run for governor of South Carolina. He had a real calling to be governor. I uh, wasn't pleased with what was going on in the state, had never been in politics before, but was very frustrated. The Republican leadership and the leadership in general in South Carolina, and instead of just complaining about it or sending a check on it, he said, I'm going to do something. And so he said, if I can find a new CEO to run my business, I'll get to run for governor. So fortunately, he and I connected and it was a nice fit because I'm just down the road from Charlotte and decided I'd come out of retirement and lead Lima One Capital. Uh, We're a nationwide lender. We lend money to real estate investors. So anyone who does a fix and flip project, rental 
project, uh, that they're going to either do a single house, single loan project or a portfolio of rental houses. We'll make loans on those. And we're also doing loans on small balance, multifamily properties. And so we'll do loans as small as $100,000, $75,000. And we'll do loans as much as $20 million. And so We'll do over a billion dollars of mortgages uh, this year uh, and well on track to have uh, clearly another double where we were last year. So it's a great time. And we're based in Greenville, South Carolina, where we have about 130 employees today. And you'll be pleased to hear we got a really fun, dynamic, great culture. In fact, we had bagel Mondays this morning for people to come in and have breakfast. And on Thursday, we'll pass around the beer cart and have a beer cart Thursday. So, so anyway, it's a fun time to have our employees engaged, grow is fun and we're building the kind of culture that you and I would both appreciate. So, so talk about the leadership lab you were trying to talk about before I cut yeah, you off. So, so that's one of the things we did was I got frustrated that I wasn't seeing a leadership culture at Lima One and it hit me one day. It's like, duh, no one's trained them on how to lead, have that culture, how to learn a lot of the things. And so, you know, what leaders do is they go first and, and we said, all right, let's build a leadership lab. And so once a month, I pull my directors and above together and I just share for an hour with them leadership and what that means and what that looks like. And, and the first session was called We Do Dirty Work. And the whole concept is as leaders, we have to do things that other people don't want to do. And it's all about the intentionality. And then the second one was Because I'm the Boss. And it's like, I've got a lot of young leaders. It's not, you don't lead anymore because you're the boss. You lead because you do the things necessary to help people respect you as their boss. And so that's where we really created the concept of really leadership is fighting for the highest good of those we serve. And that's kind of the concept we think about here at Lima One Capital is we're fighting for people's highest good. That's leadership. And at times that means you need to let them go because they're not doing what they should do because they're highest good is not being here. Their best and highest yield is going somewhere else. That's not being a bad leader. It's being a bad leader if you let them stay here and then all the other elements that go with it. And then that led into what we just launched was our customer experience uh, vision. And we wanted to create a customer service vision at Lima One Capital. And that's where that came from. So uh, we came up with a customer service vision that said, own every moment and invest in every opportunity. And that's the way that people need to think about delivering. Customers. You know, it's funny when I first met you in Charlotte and you were heading up all the operations and sales at B2R, it was always impressive. You know, here I am, I'm on the road and I'm staying in a hotel and eight, nine o'clock at night, you'd be in there with your jacket off and your sleeves rolled up working on loan docs or reviewing an origination file or helping one of the new salespeople with their problems. And you know, you said we do dirty work and it's kind of funny. Episode two or three of my podcast was getting back in the saddle was kind of the theme because Adam recently left the company and went on to do some other stuff. And I had to start taking over all these house buying activities that I hadn't done in five, six, seven years. And you start finding all these problems that were probably making people's job really difficult and really unsatisfying and you know a lot of friction in the process. Yep. And so before we came on, I was telling you how we were buying more houses lately. It's because I was forced as the owner of the company and the leader to get in the dirt. And I started finding all these things that were antiquated, that technologies that didn't function well together, frankly, just wasted time and energy and things that made simple processes complicated. And it's kind of funny you say that. And I'm like, I am the boss. It's like telling your kids, because I said so, right? It's like, yeah, that's a 
real great way to garner respect and, and someone to, you know, do what you want them to do intentionally. So you are an entrepreneur. I believe you have a some sort of interest in Lima One, not just as a CEO. You came out of retirement. I think your kids are grown. It's you and Kathy at home. Why are you doing this now? From small business to big business, I think too many people lose track of their whole why in life. And they, you know, they want to buy a Ferrari when like really and truly that's just to impress people. If they would just keep the F-250 they have, they'd probably be more happy. So walk through kind of the why behind why Jeff Tennyson's working and advice for entrepreneurs that may want to go into retirement, come out of retirement, shift careers, just kind of what makes you tick and what have you found throughout your career in life that helps you? Well, it's interesting. Really, after our B2R experience, I created the decision matrix, what I want to do next. And I've stuck really hard to this decision matrix over the last five years, six years of decisions on what I want to do next. And it really starts with where do I want to live? And and then what do I want to do every day? Uh, And then once you kind of get to those things, it's like, okay, are these good people or bad people? And if they're bad people and means bad culture, tough environment, something that doesn't fit with my value system. Doesn't mean they're bad. I'm right and they're wrong or I'm good and they're bad. It just means as a leader, I don't fit with what they're doing. You know, I'm 57 years old. I'm not going to change. I am who I am. And I've got to find a place that I can fit into. And I was at a point retirement where if I couldn't find anything, that's okay. I'm not going to force it. And so, for example, we picked about a handful of three to five cities that we would even be interested in doing something. And Greenville, South Carolina was not necessarily on that list, but it's an hour and a half from Charlotte, which is where our daughter lives. And we have a network of friends. And so effectively, we're building a house in Charlotte and I'm commuting back and forth to Greenville uh, to leave Lima One Capital. But it's all about what do you want to do at this stage of your life? It's not about the money. It's about activity because what we can't do, in my opinion, at really at least up until our late 60s, maybe early 70s, I don't think you can just quit and do nothing and try to figure out every day. So I want to be engaged. I want to be with smart people. I want to be with people. I know, like, and trust. And so at some point, that'll be meaning me coaching or consulting or doing something along that line. But when you can find an organization like Lima One that you really can share your values, that does have ability to, to utilize your skill sets and utilize what you're really good at to make it better and truly fight for the highest good of those we serve, that's when you say, I got to do that. Here. How many people work at Lima One now? We have 130 people. So when you're running a 130 person company or an 800 person company or a 20 person company, I know you like golf. I know you're involved in your church. Church. I know you like to spend time with your wife. I know you like to see your kids. How have you found ways to maintain work-life balance through all these stages of different companies? Because I feel like, I think that's what makes people in corporate America so miserable is they don't prioritize the things they want the most and they just kind of become a slave to that paycheck and that job. So how do you maintain work-life balance? I can't always say that I've been successful at that. There's times when I have not done a good job of balance. In, in many ways, part of that's maturity. I think as we get more mature, we truly recognize what really matters and what we really value. And we allow ourselves to intentionally be a part of the things that we really value. I think as we're younger in our careers, we don't really know what we value. And we're so afraid of losing what we don't already have that we will allow ourselves to be slaves to our calendars or slaves to the company and lose sight of the work-life balance. I think there's two things. One is, it's back to the word I used earlier, you got to be intentional and you have to be intentional about what really matters to you. And it may be at this stage of your life, 
work. And it may be building your career. Don't apologize for that. Work through it with your family. Work through it with people who are important to you and say, listen, for this segment of my life, I've got to really focus on this. And there's been times in my life when it's like, listen, I've sat down with Kathy and said, listen, for the next six months, I really need to be focused on work. And you guys are going to be second or third in this process. It doesn't mean you're second or third in my life, but it means for this period of life, for this season, it's going to be that point. And I think that's the other thing that I think we lose. It's just like the weather has seasons, life has seasons. And we've got to take advantage of the seasons of life we're in. And when we're in a season, we can control that work-life balance. Do it. Right. But when you're not in a season, my son's starting a new job. He's not in a season of life that he has a lot of control over what he does. And he's going to have to be in that season where he's going to have to manage the company demands, but he can't influence them the way ultimately today I can. And if I want to leave half a day on Friday and go to Charlotte, play golf, do something like that, I can do that. Now, it doesn't mean I'm not here doing stuff at eight o'clock tonight because I'll make it up, but I have control over it. So I was talking to my oldest son, Alex, as he graduates high school this Saturday and he's going to be attending Trinity University to play football. And I've had a lot of talks with him about seasons of life. And I think this next generation that is forming families a lot later than we used to will probably be a lot happier than previous generations. Because it, when I look at it, it, obviously I'll be 41 in a couple of weeks. Alex is 18. So through my 20s and 30s, I've had this internal conflict of wanting to be with him or wanting to be building my legacy at work or my business or my career. And you know, a lot of times there's those moments when he was young that I'll never get back. And I've been trying to tell him, it's like, use your 20s to go out and just slay dragons, right? If you want to be in a serious relationship, make sure that person is either super competent on their own (laughs) or they're committed to growing their career as well. Because, you know, I I think those of us that started families in our 20s or even teens, there's that internal conflict all the time. So talked with him a lot about that. And I think it's, you know, now I'm in this season where I've realized that that's really what was more important to me. And I've got a nine-year-old at home that I can just do it differently with. And I mean, that's what I'm looking forward to. And that's why I'm kind of taking a lower profile selling companies and eating more barbecue these days. Well, I think the other thing, Tim, that people forget is everyone else only sees your front of stage. And the people, the people that we interact with, we only see their front of stage. Nobody sees our back of stage. And if you've ever gone to an event, the, the stage looks amazing, but you go in the back and it is disorganized. It is out of control. It is not well presented. Right. And we all have the back of stage in our lives, but we don't let people see those. And so I think we worry too much about our front of stage until our maturation comes through and we get old as I am and uh, you don't worry as much about your front of stage but want your entire stage to be practical. Right, because I mean, it's that housekeeping and I see a lot of real estate investors and you know, that's my primary business and I look at the stage we are in the market and I see so many people getting new offices, getting more staff and trying to grow to meet a need or too often they're not growing to meet demand, they're growing to meet a desire. And we were having a little meet and eat at a barbecue restaurant in Fort Worth last week. And I was just cautioning people. I was like, look, I did that in 06 and 07 and I paid for it dearly in 08 and 09. So you would just be careful. So talk a little bit about that, right? I mean, I like the analogy, the front of stage and back of stage, but talk about like growth for the growth's sake, right? I've seen some big companies get big offices that they never fill up. And I've seen some big companies get 
too little space and cram everyone on top of each other. But, you know, there's a lot of small entrepreneurs out there that have really probably been making a lot of hay because the sun has been shining for the last 10 years almost now. Obviously, it's not an economic forecast. I'm not asking you to step out on the ledge here. But if you were a young entrepreneur, seeing all the facets of business that you've seen, what's some advice about overhead and growth and measured growth? How are you intentional about being an entrepreneur to create more time, more more revenue without significantly increasing your risk. I think, you know, we do we do that here. We really look at two things here to try to determine how we grow and what we grow with. One is we have a clear cost to operate and we do it based on basis points or a percentage. So we want 2% of our originations to be our cost. So you need some metrics. You looked at my desk, you'd see this book from John Doerr called Measure What Matters. And so you have to have these metrics to basically keep you grounded. And so use your metrics, use your processes to make sure, okay, here's what we're going to accomplish this month. Doerr talks about OKRs, objectives and key results. And so what's your objective for a long period of time, a short period of time, make sure you have key results to measure it. So that's number one, because I think a lot of times people don't have a plan and they just go. So we'll figure it out when we get there. Well, no, get a plan in place, have key measurements to to metric it and make sure that works. The second thing is the question, these guys hate it because I always ask it as we're looking at new products and new ways to grow. My first question is, will this change our risk profile? Will this change the risk profile of our company? Meaning, do we have the expertise to handle it? Will it cause us to grow into something that we may not know if it's going to grow? Will it change the way? And so we have a risk profile. What is your risk profile? What is your risk tolerance? How does your capital that you have to support that decision work in that risk profile? So for example, if you're thinly capitalized, you should have a much narrower risk profile because if anything goes wrong, you're in trouble. As your capital grows, your risk profile can lie. And I think that's the piece. So what is your measurement? What are you measuring? And then are you changing your risk profile as you get more houses? We see that all the time at Lima One. The biggest challenge in the fix and flip business, particularly, is people are way over leveraged. Now, that's awkward for me to say as a lender because I'm lending that money. But that's what happens is these people, and they say, oh, well, if I just buy this house and I can sell it, I'll just buy this house, I can sell it. Well, they wake up one day and they've got 12 houses they can't sell. Now they can't buy another one to get the proceeds out. And that's a trip. So they didn't take their capital base into consideration of their risk profile and what they were measuring. <laughs> the president of Homevestors once said, that the fix and flip business has been making millionaires out of multimillionaires for decades, right? <laughs> Some other, <laughs> we always say you can't eat equity, right? I mean, you, you can have a multi-million dollar balance sheet, but if you don't have cash, you know, yep. you can't buy groceries. And so we had to foreclose on my lending company this month on a borrower that was so thinly capitalized that, I mean, he had the reserves for that loan, but then he had a very major car wreck and it was a very unfortunate situation and he didn't get anything done for two months and he had these unexpected medical bills. And as an entrepreneur, right, so often there's some commingling of the money, right? I mean, if you need to pay a medical bill, it's easy to take some of that fix and flip repair money and pay the medical bill. And And so it it just ended up that six months went by and it's like, hey, man, we have to do something here. So the risk tolerance based off your capital and your reserves is something that, boy, I mean, there should just be a class for entrepreneurs because so many of us are not used to running our own budgets and balance sheets. We are used to executing on the day's task, right? Taking massive action. Well, I think entrepreneurs forget that capital is not a feeling. (laughs) I mean, it's just not. It's a very tangible action. 
asset that you have to understand and have to know where your risk, where your limits are. And I think a lot of times entrepreneurs, I've done it before. I did the exact same thing. I bought a lending company years ago. I put all that I felt like I could put into a company into it and let's just grow. And the more we grow, the more money we'll make. And, you know, I woke up one day and it's like, I don't have enough money to pay payroll. I don't have enough money to keep growing. We're not hitting our numbers. And it was all of a sudden it was, and the stress that's created for that's where you begin to impact. That's had the most negative impact, quite frankly, on my relationships, my wife, my family, my lifestyle is getting over my skis and my risk profile that my uh, bank account couldn't catch. So very interesting. You're a CPA. You've got a Harvard MBA and entrepreneurs get in trouble. They run out of cash. They get to where they can't operate or can't do the things that they dream of. And they don't ask for help, right? And, and, And they may not be educated. They may be a great salesperson, but they have to do the books too. And they're not educated in that. How does that happen? A smart guy like you can run out of money to make payroll because that's a feeling any entrepreneur who's been doing it long enough knows. And that's the thing that will keep you up the most at night. It will turn those great friends that work for you into very unhappy people. Talk a little bit about the couple mistakes you made in that realm that you've now learned and, and share some knowledge about that. Well, I don't know. There is a limit to how smart you can be, but there is no limit to how dumb you can be. And I think that's where effectively the way to avoid your dumbness is to experience things. And I think in some regard, I think a really a classic uh, serial entrepreneur has to have some of these moments that they learn from. And the key, I think, is to have those as early in the cycle as you possibly can. So you feel it in a way that you know you will never do it again. I'll be honest, I wish I had the secret sauce, but I think you have to experience it in some form. And what you try to do is hopefully you don't experience it in a way that it destroys you, but you do experience in a way that it changes you. And that's the important. And so I think what you're saying there is if I really summed all this up, it's you have to be intentional. You have to get experience and there's going to be times you're not in control, but dadgummit, learn from your mistakes, right? Don't keep repeating. Yeah, don't ignore mistakes. Encourage mistakes, but it, but only allow mistakes to happen that you can truly learn from. And if you have a mistake and say, I'm never going to do that again, you've made a bad mistake. If you have a mistake and say, ooh, I'm not going to do that because of this, 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 this is what I've learned from. That's when it's a good mistake. And you need a bunch of those as an entrepreneur because that's how you learn. And that's how you really create some great things. That's right, man. So we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back. And I want to talk to you a little bit more about fix and flip lending and the things that Lima One does. But also, I know you're from Arkansas and we've got to talk about some barbecue. Start collecting more leads in minutes. Not only do I use HubSpot's free CRM, but I also use their free marketing tools. Start turning visitors into leads today. Sign up for free at HubSpot.com slash TH. Sign up for free today and it's free forever. No contract or credit card required. It's a risk-free way to see what inbound marketing can do for you. Start turning visitors into leads today. Sign up for free at HubSpot.com slash TH. All right, we're back here with Jeff Tennyson. And Jeff, I'm going to talk about barbecue in a second because I know you live in the Carolinas. But first, just talk a little bit about where Lima One is and where you guys are going and give some information about how people can do business. So as I mentioned earlier, Lima One, we're a national lender. We have three primary product lines. We have a fix and flip product line that we loan to investors of all experience, people who have never done it before. If you see Chip and Joanna Gaines on television and say, we ought to do this to someone who, like yourself, Tim, 
him who does 10 to 15 houses a month. And so we provide various levels of, you know, our interest rates will go as high as high 10s, uh, low 11s for someone who has no experience. And, you know, in the high 8s, low 8s, high 7s for someone who with experience. And so that's the benefit for experience in that fix and flip space is you have your much lower risk and we understand. And so as a result, you have a much better chance. You have good opportunities to make more money with your leverage. We also have a rental product for people who want to own rental properties, all residential at Lima One Capital with the exception of our multifamily I'll talk about in a minute. All these fix and flip rental are all residential properties. We'll do one loan, one house, or we'll do one loan for a portfolio of homes. Uh, We've done loans as small as 75,000 and we've done rental loans as much as 20 million. And so we're across the board of that with our capital sources and kind of how we fund our business. And then we have the multifamily and we found a lot of our clients who were not finding as many residential properties that were advantageous to buy in certain markets, but they were finding really good B and C multifamily, small 15 door, 20 door, five door multifamily units. And they couldn't finance those, rehab them, stabilize them and get them refinanced by Fannie and Freddie small balance, which is the best pricing. So we'll basically give you a bridge loan with your multifamily project, allow you to renovate it, to stabilize it. And then in a couple of years, you can get a takeout from Fannie and Freddie uh, at a much more favorable price. So we do about 400 loans a month all over the country. We're in 43 states and it's been really fun to grow this business and really let the market see a lender that cares about them. So the other thing is we own the relationship from the originating of that loan all the way to the final payment. We have our own servicer. We service a lot of the lenders in our space. As soon as they originate the loan, they send it to somebody and you have to deal with really somebody else for the, the life of the loan. Uh-uh, not at Lima One. We're going to own that relationship all the way. That's back to our customer experience. We want to make sure our customers have a great experience from origination to last payment. And the only way we need to do that is to control it. Man, that's great. And so what's the website? www.lima1.com. And we're at all sorts of uh, RIA meetings around the country. Uh, we're at all sorts of trade shows. We'd be more than happy to help you in any way possible. That's great, man. So we'll put all the links in the show notes, but I've got a question for you. You're from Arkansas. I know you've had some good Texas barbecue. You eat that stuff in Carolina, which is better, Texas or Carolina barbecue? Memphis. Um, I'm not a fan of Carolina barbecue. They use vinegar sauce and it's just, there's no chance. Listen, you and I have had some great barbecue in Texas and you go to, what is the uh, Cedar? Pecan uh, Lodge. Yeah, the Pecan Lodge. And and then there's another one right there on that expressway right off the 60. 1050. 1050. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> so those are great barbecue, but I'm telling you my favorite barbecue is Central Barbecue in Memphis, Tennessee. And it is a terrific spot. And my best barbecue experiences have been at Rendezvous for Ribs in Memphis, uh, Corky's, which is the original Corky's in Memphis, and then my most recent favorite is Central Barbecue in downtown Memphis. Well, we're going to have to go and uh, just spend a couple days hitting barbecue joints and working on real estate there, Jeff. I like it. I know you're a busy guy being the CEO of a company. I appreciate you taking the time, and we'll see you soon, man. All right, my friend. Thanks a lot. It's always a pleasure to hang out with you. That's all the time we have today. Thank you again for taking your time to spend some time with us on the Business and Barbecue Podcast. It would mean the world to me if you could give us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or anywhere that you listen to the Business and Barbecue Podcast. Until next time, keep cooking. Thanks for listening to the Business and Barbecue Podcast. Make sure you check out our other episodes and stop by timherridge.com to say hi. We want to hear from you. Until next time, keep Keep cooking. cooking.